Christ. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to be at today. So open your Bibles there. Now we're going to look at almost the entire chapter. Um, We won't read it to start with. I'm going to be pressed for time. And so we're going to read the first two verses and then we're going to read the end, okay? But throughout the course of this message, we're really going to look at most of Isaiah chapter 40. It's a, it's a beautiful chapter. I think it'll be really encouraging to you. So Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 and then verses 27 through 31, okay? So I'm going to read that. You read along in your Bible. Here we go. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now go to verse 27. Verse 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is an everlasting God? The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run. And not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thank you, Jesus, for this encouragement from your word today. We thank you for your glory, for what it does in our souls. And God, we pray that you would teach us today what it means to wait upon you. Father, please be our teacher through the power of your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're just reading through the book of Isaiah, when you get to chapter 40, it's like someone finally turned on the climate control, okay? Because uh, the first 39 chapters are brutal. Uh, they are judgment, 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 especially the 20s and 30s through the, through the book of Isaiah. It's God's judgment because Israel has been rebelling for centuries and God is finally saying, that's it. You know, I'm going to take you away into exile. I've got to purify my people. And so first it's the Assyrians, and then it's the Babylonians, and then it's the Medes and the Persians. It's 70 years of exile, having their their towns and their communities and their cities destroyed, being led away in chains to a foreign country, many of them never to return again. Okay, So first 39 chapters are pretty brutal. Israel, along with the other nations around them, being judged for their sin. Now, you hit chapter 40, and how, now you have God coming and saying, I'm going to comfort my people. Okay, the first two words, comfort, comfort my people. Say to my people, comfort, okay? So God is bringing comfort to his people. Isaiah 40 through 66 looks forward in time to when God will bring back his people out of exile and we restore them, okay? And so Isaiah is all about how God brings comfort to his people. Now, one of the things that I want you to begin to think about is how are we comforted, okay? How, how, how does that, what does it mean to be comforted? Here's my best definition. My best definition is when you comfort somebody, you show, you show pity to them You show sympathy to them with the end of bringing relief. That's really what you want, right? So someone's hurting, someone's anxious, someone's struggling, someone's uncomfortable. And when you comfort them, what do you do? You do something, you say something, you give something, you you act in such a way that brings some relief, right? And so how does God bring relief to us in the midst of our struggles and anxiety and pain 
and discomfort? How does he do that? That's a great question because, you know, when I, when I, th- I was thinking about this the other day, I was thinking about many of you have raised kids. And so when you have infants and when you have toddlers that are nonverbal yet, one of the hardest things about that, first of all, you know quickly when they're uncomfortable, right? I mean, there's no, like, like if you don't get that, you got to quit the parenting thing, okay? Because, I mean, you know quickly, right? They tell you, I'm uncomfortable, right? They, they'll scream it, they'll cry, they'll, you know, wail like banshees, all right? They're, they're going to tell you quickly, I am uncomfortable. There's something wrong, right? I'm in pain, I'm in distress. Now, the tough thing, though, is figuring out how do I bring relief, right? Because, how do I come for you, right? So we go through a diagnostic. The first thing you do is what? You sniff, right? It's a sniff test, you know? Like, because if you were sitting in that, you would be crying too, right? You'd be uncomfortable. You would want relief, right? So that's the first thing we do. That's you. This is the diagnostic most people go, you know, sniff. You know, okay, no, that's good. All right, we're all right. Okay, so the second thing you do, are you hungry, right? Are you, maybe you're hungry. So you go and, and you get them a snack. Do you, would you like a cookie? Would you like a fruit snack? Would you like your bottle? Would you like, right? And then sometimes you're like, okay, is it the right thing? So you like try the cookie and they're like, no, you know, I mean, they'll tell you right away if they don't want it, you know, ha, you know, or, something, or give them their cup, they throw it. Okay. That wasn't it. Right. So, okay. No poop. No, you know, you're not hungry. You're not thirsty. Well, are you bored? You know, so, Hey, do you want to play again? Here's a ball, throw them the ball, you know, or take them outside or look at the doggy or watch the movie or, right, right. You're trying to figure out what will bring relief, okay? And man, I know you guys, if you had little kids, there's times where you try everything, right? And you're just coming up with a zero. Like, you're not comforting them. They're not, they don't experience relief, you know? And sometimes they're even doing that thing where they're like, point, you know? And you're like, okay, it's in the southern hemisphere, you know, where, you know, you're trying to find it, you know? What do you want? The plant, the dog, you know? And, and, but here's the thing that often you realize, they don't know. They don't know. Like, they know they're hurting, but they really don't know exactly what would make it better. Here's my experience with us. There are times when we're hurting. There are times when we are in pain. There's times when we are struggling. And we're not actually sure what would make it better. But here's what I want to tell you out of Isaiah 40. God knows how to comfort his people. Okay? God is a good father. He he's not shooting in the dark like us. Okay? Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus talks about the fatherhood of God, he says this. He says, Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be open. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven? Give good things to those who ask him. You see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying God knows. God, God knows. God is a good father. You know, he's not just, well, you know, do you want to drink? Do you want? He's not just stabbing at it. God knows what your soul needs, okay? You're in distress. You're in struggle. You're in anger. Okay, God knows how to comfort you, okay? So that's encouraging to me, okay? So when Isaiah 40 opens up and says, comfort, comfort my people, I'm excited because I'm like, okay, how is God going to bring relief? How is God going to, what do we need? What is it that my soul needs that will make me okay? That will bring relief to my soul, okay? So as we look at Isaiah 40, let me kind of lay this out for you in, in a macro scale. So what does Isaiah 40 say? How does God comfort us? And I would tell you, here's how God comforts us. He comforts us by giving us himself, showing us 
His glory, His character, who He is, all right? So as you, as you look at Isaiah 40, here's what God's going to do. He's going to comfort us by showing us Himself. Now, it starts out, verses 3, 4, and 5, by saying, basically, prophesying that God's going to come Himself. God's going to send a deliverer. God's going to send a Messiah. And we know that Messiah is Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know that that's what Isaiah 40 is talking about? Well, the Bible actually tells us, okay? So in Isaiah 43, it says, A voice... Uh, cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall will be made low. The even ground shall become level and the rough place plain. And the glory, that, see, that's what we need. That's what's going to fill us up. That's what it, what's going to comfort our soul. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All right. Now, how do I know that's talking about Jesus? Well, go over into your New Testament in Matthew chapter 3. And it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one, he quotes verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Okay? And so Isaiah says, basically, when a king comes, all right, when a king comes to your little village, to your little town, you know what you do? Well, normally, if the, if the little foot trail to your village, it goes around Farmer Ben's farm and circles around the pass and comes down and through the creek and down the canyon and, you know, around the big oak tree and, and there it gets to your village, all right? But when you find out the king's coming, what do you do? You pull out the construction crew and you make a straight road right to your village to welcome the way of the king. And, and, and Isaiah says, man, there's going to be one who cries in the wilderness, get ready for the king. And then we open up into the New Testament of Matthew 3, and it says, you know who that was talking about? John the Baptist. You know who the king is? Jesus. Make way for Jesus. Here comes the king. Here comes the one who's going to show us the glory of God. Now, why do we need the glory of God? What is comforting about seeing God flex his muscles, seeing who he is, seeing his character? Well, let's explore that a little bit. It'd be great if we had time to go all the way through Isaiah 40, verse by verse, because this stuff is awesome, okay? We don't have time for that, so let's just settle on a couple verses as examples, okay? So go to verse 12. What does God say? How's he comforting his people, okay? What's he doing for us? Well, verse 12, he says this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, have you been to the ocean? Have you, have you ever realized, even if you've been to like, I don't know, you know, Lake Tenkiller or Grand Lake or something, you realize there's a lot of water in the earth, okay? But if you've been to the ocean, if you've been out on a cruise ship, out where you, 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 you go all night and you come out in the morning and you walk around the boat and all you can see is water, or maybe you've flown to Asia, or maybe you've flown to Europe, and, and you fly for 6, 7, 8, 10, 12 hours over nothing but water going seven to 800 miles an hour, and you realize that uh, that water in places is miles deep, miles and miles and miles of water. And then it says in Isaiah 12, God says, I want to comfort you. And here's what I, what, how I want to comfort you. I want you to realize I'm the one who holds the waters of the earth in the palm of my hand. Some of you got out your pillbox this morning, right? And you, one, two, three. Sure, not more than that. One, two, right? You count it in your hand. God scoops up the oceans and he says, that's about this much. Now, why is that comforting? This is very important. What is, what is he telling us? God is big, and big things are small to God. Did you get that? God is big, and big things, the oceans, the waters of the earth, are small to God. 
Right. We know he's saying that because look at where he goes. He, this is not an accident. He does it over and over again. Verse 12. Next, next section. And marked off the heavens with a span. How do, you, how do you measure the heavens? How do you measure star to star, galaxy to galaxy, the Milky Way? How do you measure that? Well, the way that we try to measure that is in light years, right? It's the, it's the, it's the distance that the, uh, something going at the speed of light travels in a year, and that's how we measure how big, even though we don't know where the end of it is, the heavens are. And then Isaiah says, Hey, I'm going to comfort you, my people, and I'm going to comfort you by by you realizing that God marks off the heavens with his arms. You know, that's like here to here. Okay? Again, let's keep going. Verse 12. And enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale. These are all big things, right? The waters of the earth, that's a big thing. The, 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 The span of the heavens, that's a big thing. The mountains of the earth, that's a big thing, isn't it? I love the mountains. You guys know that. I love the mountains. You know, the ones that we usually go to are, are in Colorado, right? And so when you go to the Colorado Rockies, you know, you come into Denver at 5,000 feet, and then, then you go up into the mountains. You know, most of the towns in the mountains are around eight, 9,000 feet. And then if you want to go up on the mountains, some of the biggest mountains, you know, you can usually get on the trailhead around 10,000, nine to 10. Some of them, there's a few of them, you can go up to like 11 or 12 to get on the trailhead. And then you make that last 2,000 vertical feet on foot in pain, you know, and your lungs are bursting, and you don't know that you're going to make it. I mean, literally, you think several times about, about turning back because it's so high, and it takes you so many hours to get to the top of that 14,000-foot mountain, and you look around all over, and you can see for miles and miles and miles, and then you realize that this, as far as the earth, is not a big mountain, right? Because, because if, you, if you went all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, okay, and you took that whole 14,000 feet that you're at, and you, you doubled that and stacked another 14 on it, you still would not be quite as high as the highest mountains in the Himalayas. 29,000. Those are big, right? What's God saying? These are big things. The ocean is a big thing. The heavens are a big thing. The mountains are a big thing. What does it say about the mountains? God weighs them in scales. God takes them like tinker toys, puts them in the scales. Again, what's he saying? Big things are small to God. God is big. Big things are small to God. Now, how's this comforting? God's comforting us. How how is he comforting us? Well, think about Israel. So here's Israel. They've they've been crushed as a nation. They've had their town overrun. Is that a big thing? When your town gets overrun and your house is, is destroyed or someone else takes it over and you're put away in shackles? And, and mom goes to this town in Babylon, and dad goes to this one, and you don't know where the kids went. Is that a big deal? That's a big deal. And your whole nation's been taken away, and there's no government anymore, and you're in exile. Your home's gone, your farm's gone, your government's gone, your community's gone, your neighbor's gone. That's a big thing. That's impossible. How can this ever be made right? So how does God comfort his people? He says, guys, you got to realize I'm big. And big things are small to me. And so for so much of Isaiah 40, and we don't have time to go through all of it, that's what he's doing. He's saying, I measure the heavens with a span, the waters in the hollow of my hand, the mountains in scales. I'm a big God. I'm a big God. He continues. 
He talks about how he's unstoppable. Man, that's, that's encouraging to know. He, he cannot be thwarted. And again, imagine Israel oppressed by the Babylonians and then crushed by, by the, Assyri- or the Assyrians and then crushed by the Babylonians and then, and then taken over by the Medes and, and the Persians and all these princes and nations and rulers who, who, who oppress God's people. What's God say about that? Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Accounted as dust on the scales. What, what's, what's God doing there? He said, these people that you so fear, that they're the biggest thing in your life, oppressing you, your biggest problem, your, your, your biggest threat, what is it? It's dust on the scales to God. It seems like a flood. It's a drop to God. It seems like a dragon. Look at verse 2. It's a grasshopper. It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are, are grasshoppers. Pharaoh, Nero, Caesar. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Hitler, Napoleon. Who are they? They're grasshoppers to God. God is comforting us by revealing His bigness. You need to see God as big. Okay? Now here's the beautiful part though. Not only should you see Him as big, but then you should also see Him as good, as tender, as gentle. Okay? Because big can, that can just be maybe scary, right? But, but he comes back, and now look at verse 10 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. God is coming, and he's going to reign. That's what it says. And his arm's going to rule for him. And behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. But how is he going to reign? How is he going to rule you? Verse 11. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he'll carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are young. What a picture. God doesn't drive his people. God, God does, you know, he's not behind there with a whip. He's not got a bullhorn. How does God do this? He scoops up. What kind of a leader is he? What kind of a ruler? What kind of a God will he be for you? He'll scoop you up. And notice the language. He carries them in his bosom, close to his chest, in his arms. He's gentle with them. Isn't that beautiful language? That's not like me. I'll just tell you, I'm not like that. I'm not that tender. Snickers got to go outside. Get out, you know. She runs to the door. She gets to the door. She's like waiting there and her tail's between her legs. She, you know, open that door and depending on whether I'm irritated or not, I don't kick her, but sometimes I give her a little nudge out, you know. That's not the way God is. I'm glad God is not like me. You know, The God who measures the universe, who weighs the mountains and the scales, for whom the nations are dust, that God will scoop you up and hold you in his chest. Comfort, comfort my people Israel. If this almighty God is for us, who can be against us? Hebrews 2, he who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He who is our intercessor, who's been tempted in every way, he'll be tender with you. That, that, that's what he's saying here. He's a shepherd king. All right, let's, let's progress. So, if that's who God is for us, honest question, why aren't we more comforted? Okay? Why in our distress, why in our 
our life falling apart? Why in our trials and trouble? Why, why aren't we more encouraged? Why, why aren't we more at rest? Why, why aren't we more confident? Why? Why, why not? Well, let me, let me answer that in, in three ways, okay? So, first, first answer. Maybe it's because we don't believe Isaiah 40. I mean, we'll have over 500 people in our three services today, and the odds are there will be some here today who hear this and say, I don't believe that. I don't believe God is big. I, he's not helped me. I don't believe He's strong. He's, I've heard it. I've heard people say that. They're angry. They're angry at God. You know, He's not been tender with me. He's kicked me around. Man, my life's been nothing but hard. I don't think that's not who God is. Honestly, there'll be some in their heart of hearts. They're not comforted by Isaiah 40 because they don't believe it. And if that's you today, let me just say a couple things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you feel that way about God. I'm sorry that you've, you've had that experience in your life. And my prayer for you, and I can't do this for you. Only the Holy Spirit can do this, but I can pray. My, my prayer is that God would open your eyes and you would see his glory. God would open the, the windows of heaven and just give you a glimpse of Jesus. The, the God-man who stepped out of the heavens and came and was born in poverty and obscurity and lived a life of suffering and service and then died a cruel death on the cross on your behalf. I just I pray that God would open your eyes to see that is who He is. Number two, there's probably many here today who would, would say, no, I believe Isaiah 40. I, 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 believe, I believe that God is good. I believe that He's strong. I just, you know, it just doesn't seem very maybe real to me. Right? Maybe he feels far away. In other words, you know, faith, faith and we've talked about this before, it, it's, don't think of faith this way. A lot of people think of faith like, like a light switch, okay? It's like, it's like I don't have faith, and then boom, I have it. And this is all the faith I have, you know? I mean, it didn't, I can't like step it up a, a notch. This is it, right? It's either off or on. I, I don't think you should think of faith that way. Okay, so you either don't have faith or you do have faith, but then once you do, do you have all the faith that you're ever going to have? Do you have all the knowledge of God that you're ever going to have? No, you don't, right? Remember the guy in Mark who, who cried out to Jesus? Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief, right? Remember Paul who, who's saved on the Damascus Road? He sees a glimpse of the glorified Jesus, and, and, and he begins to follow Christ, and he's, he's, he plants churches all over the known world, and, and he's caught up in the third heaven. And then at the end of his life, he's writing from Rome in a prison cell, and he writes to the Philippian church, and he says, here's what my goal is, that I might know him. And the power of his resurrection. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, man, I know Jesus, but I want to know him more. I, I, I've seen his glory. I want to see it more. It's, it's that verse that we look at all the time here at Lincoln. It's kind of a flagship verse for us. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, we all with unveiled face. That's what happens when you become a believer. You, the veil is taken away and you see the glory of God. And beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed to the, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. One degree, right? I want to see him more. I want to see him more tomorrow. I want to know him more tomorrow. I, I want to know in, in greater measure, and I want to experience and, and see how good he is and how powerful he is. I, man, many of you have been Christians for 20, 30 years, and isn't it, not, isn't it true that, that you know Christ, you've seen more of his glory, you've seen more of his power, more of his greatness now than you had when you first believed? 
And so for maybe for some of us, the answer is, you know, do I feel weak? Do I feel depressed? Do I feel hopeless? Well, then I need to know God. I need to seek God. I need to study God. The answer is not looking inward to myself. The answer is looking outward to Him. I want to know Him. Or thirdly, and honestly, this is probably where many of us are at. Why aren't we more comforted? Because we need to learn, and this is a hard lesson, we need to learn to wait on Him. Right? How does Isaiah 40 end? It says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They that wait upon the Lord. You see, we don't like to wait, do we? And what happens with a lot of people when they try to wait, right? They, they get in line. And, All right, this Jesus is going to bring me life. This is the path to life. I'm going to put my trust in him. And, and now it's been 10 minutes and nothing's happened, you know. And so I guess it's not going to. I'm getting out of line. I mean, it's hard for us to wait. The word wait, I looked it up in my Brown Driver and Briggs uh, Hebrew lexicon. Interesting word. It means to twist and stretch and then endure. It's almost like a bow. That's what Crystal Castor said in the first service when she came in after the sermon. She says, it's like a bow. And it is. It's like tension and then holding that, waiting, waiting for God to do all that he said he would do. But we're not a people that wait well, are we? We're not at all. I don't wait well. Man, I left the first service a couple hours ago, and there were three cars in front of me. You know, as we went out of the parking lot, I turned left, you know. I just, I couldn't stomach, you know, waiting behind them on those two stop signs, you know. I mean, I mean, really, we're that bad, aren't we? I mean, how many of you, you choose where to eat by how, how short the line is? Man, I mean, I got that figured out, you know. Seven cars at McDonald's is three cars at Brahms. I mean, they're not all the same. They're, some are faster than others. So I'm flying by and looking, look, look, there's a line there. You know, come in. I've, I've gone in the line and gone out before, you know, right? How many of you gone into Subway? Man, this, this is a regular occurrence. We get eight people out of the car, car seats. We get in, we step one foot in the Subway. We look at the line, get in the car, you know. I mean, I'm not waiting, you know. I, I wanted a meatball sandwich and a macadamia nut cookie, but it's not worth it. We'll have something else or we'll go, but we're not going to wait. I mean, we're that bad. We don't like to wait. And, and sometimes we come over into our spiritual life And God's going to do all these good things. And God's promised this is who He is. And we can count on Him. We can trust Him. We're not willing to wait. We get out of line. What's it mean to wait? It doesn't mean you do nothing. That's that's wrong. That's not what waiting is. Not from a biblical standpoint. Let's look at three things that waiting is. Number one, waiting is remaining in a posture of faith. Okay, so so waiting is is saying, all right, I believe life is in Jesus. I believe my comfort is in Jesus. I believe my relief, my it's gonna, it's going to come in Jesus, and so I'm I'm staying right here, and I'm I'm obeying and I'm following and I'm looking and I'm 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 I'm, I'm headed to Jesus. Okay, now now here's what happens with a lot of people: they get in this line. All right, I'm I'm putting my trust in Jesus. Life is in Jesus, and then they're waiting, and it doesn't all the problems. They're still struggling, right? The problems aren't taken away. And they look over. And you know what? The line for life and money 
is shorter. It's half this long. Come on, kids. No, no, forget that. It's, we're going to get in this line. We're putting, we're putting our ducks in this line. This is what's going to make building our business, you know, having things. This, guys, this is what, what our life's in. And then even worse, I've seen this. They get in this line for a while, but it's kind of taking a while, and they're not finding life. And they look over, and there's a door that says selfish pleasures, and there's no line. You know what people do? Some folks, they'll leave their family and all right in this line. Y'all stay here. I'm going to go to the back. You know, there they go, you know, right through the door. Man, I want an immediate hit. I want an immediate. I want no line. I want. So what, what is waiting? Waiting is remaining in a posture of faith. It's saying, I'm not leaving this line. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is, is what's going to bring me life. And I am not getting out. I'm following. I'm, I'm trusting. I'm obeying. I'm staying right here. Number two, waiting is restful contentment. Did you hear that? Restful contentment. I have seen some of the ugliest of the ugly when people have to wait. Man, I, I thought I was going to be in an all-out mob one time in the middle of the night at an airport when we were waiting in line to get tickets because they'd canceled our plane because, you know, a bunch of mess. And, man, I'm telling you, people were irate. We don't do well when we have to wait, do we? Sometimes we get irritable, we get angry, we lash out. Okay, but that's really not waiting on the Lord, is it? I mean, that, that's not saying, God, you're, man, you're what I need. You are good. You span the heavens. You hold the oceans. You weigh the mountains. You're a gentle shepherd who scoops up his lambs and carries them. God, you're all of that. And so, man, my heart is at rest. Psalm 8411. I, I like I love Psalm 8411 and Romans 828. They're right in line and they're they're so good. Listen, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I think about that a lot when I'm in line. And I don't have what I think I ought to have, you know? And then I gotta come back and say, Well, hold on, hold on. No good thing does he withhold. He's good. I can trust him. He's limitless in power. I can rest in him. Instead of being agitated and frustrated and angry, when we don't have what we think we ought to have, it's Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Thirdly, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means... To remain in joyful expectation. That's maybe the maybe the the strongest definition, the strongest connotation of what it means to wait in the Lord, wait on the Lord is, is that we are fully expecting good things. Okay? So as as we're as we're waiting on God, as we put our trust in Him, man, there's this sense of excitement. There's a sense of confidence. You, you know what we here's the word hope, right? I mean that's what it is, hope. It's just this great hope of God is going to do good things. 
God is limitless in power. God is a tender shepherd. I belong to Him, and He is going to do great things. And man, I, I am looking for it. I am waiting for it. And what He's going to do has, has put in me a sense of great joy. Our mom had been gone for 10 days. And she was coming back last night. And we knew she was coming back. Kids ask a hundred times, when's mom going to be here? When's she going to come back? What time? Where's she at? And man, we, we waited with great expectation. It was a joyful waiting, you know? The closer it got, the happier we got. And man, we, we, we weren't idle. We cleaned the house, you know? We cleaned it. We vacuumed. We stuffed things. We did laundry. We put the dishes in the dishwasher. We bought flowers. We had a card. And then as it got real close and we knew she was coming. Colty, he was getting tired and bedtime, but we were keeping him up. We wrapped him up in a blanket. We went out on the driveway. It was cold last night, but we got him all blanketed up. He had the furry sleepers on, and we got him up, and, and we stood at the end of the driveway, and I whispered to him, Mom's coming. She's coming. She's coming. Here she comes. And there she comes around the corner. How much more should you be like that? Huh? That's just Emma coming home, you know? Now it's all back to normal. Even sick this morning. Jesus is coming. He's going to make all things right. He's going to fill your soul like nobody can. How much more should you wait in expectation? Why? Let's read it again, verse 30. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. You hear that? You know, the answer to the world, from the world, to things like depression, discouragement, hopelessness, is either change your circumstances or numb the pain, right? I mean, those are the two ways they go, you know? It's either, okay, get a new job, get a new wife, get a new husband, get a new family, you know? Get a new financial state, or, you know, that's how you're going to change your, your, finan- your, your, your spiritual, your emotional funk. Or, you know, take something that will numb it and make it seem better. Give it, here's, what, here's what Isaiah says. Those who wait for the Lord, they renew their They get more strength, okay? They, they don't faint. They're not weird. God's, God's not exhausted, okay? He, he gives them strength. And then he enables them. It's interesting. Notice verse 31. Mount up with wings like eagles, soar, run, not be weary, walk, and not faint. Tim Keller said an interesting thing. He, he said, he said why, why is it in that order? Because that's not what you expect, right? You would expect the opposite, okay? Those who wait on the Lord, they'll walk. No! They'll run. No! They'll mount up with wings and soar. And so why, why does he do it the other way? They'll soar and they'll run and they'll walk. I'll give you what Keller says. I, I, th- I think he's probably right. I think it's because, and you read in the New Testament, you're going to see this is true. Here's what God promises. God promises to keep you walking. That's the promise, to keep you enduring. 
wouldn't it be great if we soared all the time, right? Wouldn't it be great if that was his promise, you know? Those who wait on me, man, they'll do nothing but, you know, 30,000 feet flying over all this junk. That's really not the promise, is it? There'll be some of that. And other times, you'll run. You've been in Christian life? Have you been in those seasons where you're a runner, man? You're passing everybody else. I love that in Pilgrim's Progress when uh, uh, Christian, he passes. Who is it? Hopeful? You know, he's running. He's, he passes him. He gets so prideful. He's not looking where he goes and he falls. Yeah, you remember that? You're that way, right? You're just passing everybody, just cruising along spiritually. But then other times, it's a walk, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a march. It's an uphill climb, right? What, what's God promised? Those who wait on the Lord, they'll walk. They'll endure. God will enable you to keep progressing and to gain all that he has promised. That's the promise to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, you are a mighty God, that you have spoke the world into existence, that you sustain us with the word of your power. We thank you, God, that you are are mighty in, in holding the world in your hands. God, there's nothing too difficult for you. There is nothing insurmountable for your great power. And Father, we thank you that you are also the shepherd king, that you hold us close, that you scoop us up and carry us, that you're gentle with us. Lord, we, we love you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to wait, to wait upon the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.